Thank you, choir. Appreciate that. Strong words, beautiful music. Many of you weren't here last Sunday. We were down probably 50%. It was cold. Remember last Sunday? And, uh, but you'll never guess who did the special music last Sunday. If you weren't here, I'll tell you. Preschool choir was here last Sunday. That was awesome. This is a tough church. We're just really excited to see what God does in cold weather around here. And we keep on going, and God keeps on blessing. Speaking of keep on going, I wanted to preach this sermon and finish it up. I started a month ago, part one of the path to a good life. And then we did two weeks on our special emphasis to reach one. Then last week, the weather came bad. So Saturday night, I, I got another sermon together for last Sunday morning because I wanted to preach this one to, to more of the people so you could finish up part two after part one. And so uh, what I wanted to let you know is that even though I'm going to talk about path to a good life, sometimes there's some downtrends in our life. Reminds me of this guy. He was having a really bad day, and someone came up to him and said, cheer up, things will get worse. So he cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. Sometimes that happens. Or maybe you've heard the story about you're in a room, and everybody's sharing their stuff. Everybody's having a bad time. Everybody has this big load of stuff that they're dealing with, and they wish they'd get rid of. So one by one, they lay their stuff on the table, and they all go around and put their stuff on the table. Next guy puts the stuff on the table. Next guy puts the stuff on the table. And after it's all said and done, which guy's stuff do you want to take back? your own because everybody else's stuff seems to be worse. Yeah, there's going to be some difficult times, and I want you to know that even though we're talking about the path to a good life, there are times where it gets a little rocky. But in general, to follow the Lord and His prescription that we're talking about today, what needs to happen in our lives for us to experience the blessing of God is going to make a difference. We're going to feel happier. We're going to feel more joyful. We're going to feel more authentically fulfilled. And so I want to finish that sermon today. But again, I want to reinforce, maybe you're in a low spot now. Maybe you're going to say, well, Al, I've been doing all those things, and still things are a little difficult for me. Well, I'll try to explain that to you as well. But I think of a guy named Joseph in the book of Genesis. If anybody ever did things right, if he ever followed the Lord's requisites, if he ever obeyed, if there's anybody who's ever done it, it's Joseph. And what happens to Joseph well, his brothers hate him. They try to kill him, and then they send him into Egypt, and there he's accused of rape, and he's sent into a prison for two years, and things are unraveling. Here's a guy who is perhaps the most godly guy in the Bible, and sometimes things go wrong. But what I want to say to you, even though that can happen from time to time, generally speaking, when we follow the right path, life is going to be better, and it's going to be a good life. And so the big idea of my sermon today is what it was a month ago. When I preach the first half, if we follow God's directives, His commands, His prescriptions, His directives, His rules, He'll bless us with wonderful results in this life. See, it's not just about getting to the other side in the streets of gold and all the wonderful things in heaven there. God wants us to enjoy some things right now in this life. And so that's what we want to talk about today because the real good life now is not written by Joel Osteen. It's written by Solomon right now when he talks about these 12 verses, what the good life looks like, and that's what we want to see. And so Proverbs 1, 3, 1 through 12 talk about six requisites for a good life. Six things that must happen. If you will obey them, then six benefits will come your way. And so we looked at the three requisites, the first three last time, and we looked at their benefits. 
And today we're going to look at three more, and I'm going to wait until the end of the sermon to review the three that I talked about a month ago. I want to talk about requisites four, five, and six today. So if you will stand with me, we're going to look at those requisites in verses 7 through 12 of Proverbs chapter 3. I'm going to highlight what is the requisite of the command and then the benefit as I read the text. And if you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring your phone today, there are pew Bibles in front of you. It is page uh, 528. And if you happen not to own a Bible, by all means, take one home with you as our gift to you. Everybody should own a Bible. So here's the command, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The benefit, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The command or the requisite in verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, the benefit, verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The requisite or the command in verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, the benefit, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father the son in whom he delights. You may be seated and my prayer is that we're going to be really tuned to what the Lord has to say today, tuned to what it takes to obey Him, and tuned to what the blessings are likely to be if we do. So let's get right to business. Requisite number four, something that we really need to hear today in the church of Christ and in this nation. Requisite number four, allow God to set the moral course, the moral compass of your life. You don't mess with those dials. And we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But listen to the command. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, I have no doubt about this. We're living in days very much like the days of the judges when it said there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that's kind of where we are today in America. We don't want the Lord to be king. We're kind of getting rid of the Lord out of many, many places in America. We don't want him in the manger squares. We don't want the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. We don't want under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. We want to get God kind of out of the way so we can do our own thing and make our own way, it seems, in these areas. But when we decide what is right and what is wrong on our own terms, we call that the doctrine of relativism, of relativism. And relativism basically is when people set their own moral standards according to personal preference rather than the authoritative standard from God as found in His Word. And so people decide what's right. People decide what's wrong. And they say, well, you know, this is an old book. It doesn't apply to me. You know, that's fuddy-duddy stuff and everything. And they decide what is right on their own terms. And that is what's going on today. But God says, nah, that's not wisdom. God says the moral compass you need is found in the Word. You can't come up with a better one. And the ones you do come up with are going to be harmful in the end, even though they look very pleasurable in the beginning. We have to understand that God knows what's best for us, and He gave us the boundaries. He gave us the law and the commandments so that we would not only honor Him, but protect ourselves. And so He speaks loudly about what ought to be going on in our lives as we allow Him to set the moral compass. But you know what's amazing to me? How many people in America go to church and they hear the word of God preached and they hear the moral compass and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And not legalistically speaking, I'm not talking about that. 
And then they go through the doors of the church and they go back to their relativism. They go back to live the wife, life the way they want to live it. And they, they don't really care about what the Word of God says. And so they kind of live it on their own terms. And the Word of God is saying that is so wrong. When you are willing to obey the moral compass of God, you will have a good benefit. And I will get to that in just a moment. But the Word of God says the beginning place for a moral compass is in verse 7. It is the fear of the Lord. And it says time and again in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is what sets the moral dial of our lives. And that's when we forego our own ideas about morality. And we fear the Lord, we turn away, it says, from sin and evil and the moral mindset of this world. So a good question then is, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, there's a lot of people who preach and teach this, and they're kind of soft on it and warm fuzzies and say, well, the fear of the Lord is awe and reverence before him in worship. Okay, I'll grant part of that. That could be part of what we're talking about. But when we talk about the fear of the Lord in its classic form in the Word of God, we're talking about something that's a little scary. We're talking about the fear of the Lord is the sense that God can be stirred to loving remedial action when we as Christians violate his commands and his statutes. In other words, the fear of the Lord is to realize that we have God to deal with when we sin, and his dealings with us are not to crush us, but to bring us to our senses and to protect us. Now, I'd have to say, in my observations of American Christians, very few Christians live according to the fear of the Lord. They just do what they want to do regardless, and they don't care whether it might hurt the Lord. They don't care whether it might be against the commands of God. They just do it, and there's no sense that they might have to deal with God over that thing. And so it's really important to understand that the beginning point of setting the moral compass on the course of our life is to realize we have to have some sense of the fear of the Lord. And so verse 7 says, when you have the fear of the Lord, you will turn away from evil. You will stop doing what you know to be wrong in God's eyes. It's revealed in the word of God. And you'll turn from sin before you ever get involved in it. And if you do get involved with it, you're going to turn away from it through repentance. You're going to say, it's over. It's enough. I don't want to do that anymore, God. I fear you. I love you. And I don't want to sin. And there's a conscious choice involved. And you decide to turn away from what's wrong to do what's right because of the love and fear of God. And by the way, that word evil, when it says turn away from evil, it's not just about the biggies out there. That we're going to murder somebody or we're going to rob or uh, do an assault. Evil in the Proverbs also includes the things that we like to maybe do once in a while or whatever as Christians. I'm talking about things like lying and cheating and gossip, and anger, and pride, and boozing, and dissension. I mean, let's really get practical here. We're going to turn away as Christians from evil. I'm talking about foul language, from entertainment, and music, and reading that's patently gratuitous, from porn, from sex outside of marriage, from the sins that so easily beset us. I mean, let's really get current. You turn away from 50 shades of gray because it'll compromise your soul. We spent last year at Old North talking about growing up together in maturity in Christ. Let me tell you what a big part of maturity is. Maturity is coming to the place where our goal is consciously not to sin. 
not to violate the commands of God. And when that's our goal, we're going to see leaps and bounds of maturity because the wisdom of God is getting through when our passion is to love Him and to be like Him and to fear God and turn away from wrong. And so, there's a benefit when we fear God and turn away from evil. It's in verse 8. Look what it says. It'll be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Whoa. Did you hear that? When we live a life that is leaving sin behind and honoring God, we tend to be more healthy. Now, I'm not talking about health and wealth here at all. I'm just talking about that God, when we live according to his rules and his commands, tends to benefit our body. It's not talking here so much about the healing that happens once in a while when we need it. We're talking about when we obey God, we are nourished in his spirit and we are nourished in our bodies. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, that when we sin, there are chemical reactions that go on in our bodies that hurt us. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, do those kinds of things, there are actually things that go on and then it produces stress and stress produces all kinds of things. And there have been studies by non-religious people that say when we live the way we should not live and come under stress, it contributes to things like heart disease and cancer. But the word of God is saying that when you obey him and live a life that's pleasing to him, you're going to just generally be more healthy. Now, does that mean I'll never come down with a common cold or come down with gallbladder or, in my case, kidney stones or something like that. No, it's going to happen to all of us. But generally speaking, if you follow the commands of God and fear him, you will live a healthier life. How many would like to live a nice, healthy life? Okay, you know what it takes. Follow the path of righteousness, and you will be in much better shape physically. Now let's move on to the fifth requisite for a good life. Requisite number five. And here's where I get to meddling a little. Will you allow me to meddle? Say amen, somebody. Oh, just a few of you. Okay. <laughs> well, got to meddle anyway. Give God the first portion of your income. Give God the first portion of your income, verses 9 and 10. Listen to verse 9. Honor the Lord. This is not a matter of just giving. This is a matter of honoring. Honor the Lord from your wealth. And by the way, we are wealthy people. All Americans, basically, anybody living in Canfield or Erie is basically wealthy according to world standards. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Now, this is an awesome verse. It tells us how to honor the Lord. And there are many ways to honor the Lord, but this is a major one. And the reality is there are so few Christians honoring the Lord this way. Now, what does it mean to honor the Lord? Well, that's not really hard. Honoring the Lord means to give him ultimate respect, to give him esteem, to give him reverence because of his exalted position and importance. So I think we understand what it means to honor him. And we're told in this verse a major way to honor him is when we give him our first fruits. Now, the concept of first fruits is a very prominent theme in the Bible. It's tied directly to the biblical concept of tithing. So we have first fruits and we have tithing. And when Israel, when they had a lot of flocks and sheep and everything, when their flocks had babies, they were to give the first one to God. And then when the harvest came in, 
they were to give the first portion to God, and when the harvest came in, they would have all these great ceremonies to give the first fruits according to the law of Moses. And so when the Jews brought their first fruits to the Lord, at least three dynamics were going on in their minds. Three things they were thinking about when they brought their first fruits. And I want you to think those things right now as I share them with you. First of all, when they brought their firstborn and when they brought their harvest, their first fruits, they were recognizing God's rightful place. They were showing God honor. They were showing God esteem and reverence as the most significant being in the universe. And the one thing they could do to show that was to bring their first fruits. The second thing that was on their mind when they brought their first fruit is they were acknowledging their lack of ownership. Guess what? First fruits belong to God. They don't belong to me. And so when they brought their first fruits, they were saying, God, this is yours. By revelation, you showed us, Lord, what this is. It does not belong to me. And God, if I keep the first fruits, I what? I rob you. The third thing they were thinking, Lord, when I bring the first fruits, I open myself up to your blessing. As we're going to see in just a minute, as it were, God made them a deal. If you'll give the first fruits, then I'm going to give you some material benefits. And so they were thinking, God, we're not doing this to get, but when we give, we understand that you will bless us because we're blessing you. And there's a reciprocity there that is going on. And so this principle of honoring God with our first fruits has not changed. You might be thinking, well, that was the Mosaic law and first fruits and tithes. Well, guess what? Before the law of Moses ever happened, there was Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. And then Jesus comes along in his teaching, Matthew 23 and verse 23, he actually affirms the idea of giving the tithe. This you have ought to done, but not to leave the other things undone, he said. And so we find a universal principle here for God's people that we need to be generous and give God the first percentage of our income. And so we see Give God the first portion of your income as the abiding principle, whether in the Old Testament was your fruits and your animals and vegetables, or today our money. The first fruits, the tithe, is our primary way to honor God. And we, if we don't give the first fruits, we dishonor Him. I want to put this concept before you in some very practical terms, just so it kind of sticks and clicks. Number one, the first portion, as I said, belongs to God and not to us. And so whatever we earn, there's a first portion, and that first portion is God. And if we don't give it to him, we don't honor him, and we actually rob him. Number two, the first portion indicates God's claim on the gross. I often hear people say, well, if I do give a tithe, what should it be, the net or the gross? Well, here he's talking about everything, everything, and now you give him the first fruits of everything. And so the biblical position is you don't wait till Uncle Sam takes out something and give to God. You give to God from it all. Third, the first portion is not a later portion. Many people spend their money, and if there's anything left over, okay, God, we'll give you a tip on Sunday morning. That does not honor God at all when we give him the last fruits. He's talking here about giving him the first fruits. Number four, 
The first portion is equally possible for everyone. And this is genius of God. He made it a percentage so that nobody's left out. So if all I earned a buck this week, what do I give them? Ten cents. I think anybody can spare one thin dime. And if I earned a hundred grand this week, what do I give them? Ten grand. Now that hurts a little bit more, but that's the way it is. God made it possible for the poor and the rich to give equally. It's not the amount, it's the percent. Number five, the first portion is God's guarantee that there'll be sufficient support for the ministry. When God designed the kingdom of God, the, the tabernacle and, and then the temple and then the church, he designed to fund it through the tithe. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, when they brought in their tithes for the temple and the priesthood and the ministry, everything was okay and fully funded. And I know the same thing would be true for the church of Jesus Christ. If all the people who call themselves Christians and went to church would give the tithe, there isn't one thing that would stop the flow of the building of the kingdom of God in might and power because everything would be subscribed. There'd be enough in church's language today because the average American gives... 2.3%, and that's about it. The next thing is that the first portion demonstrates the actual heart we have towards God. When we give our first fruits, we're saying, God, we love you. God, we honor you. We're showing a heart of gratitude that says, Lord, that first portion is so little in comparison to the 90% you've given us. Lord, we just can't help ourselves but to show our love and gratitude for all that you have. And I want to tell you something from my heart. If you decide that you don't want to give the first fruit, you can't not give and be close to God at the same time. It just is impossible. Because when you give the first fruit, it says, honor God. You are showing him honor and love and all that goes with that. If you withhold it, you're saying, oh, there's no, no, no real honor that goes with withholding what is truly God's. And so I want you to understand that the requisite is you give God honor by giving the first fruit. Now, there's a benefit that comes with that. Look at in verse 10. It says, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. This is what God wants to do for those who honor him. It's not just spiritual blessings that he gives, friends. It is material blessings that God wants to give us as well because here in this text, it is material things. It's a vat. It's a barn. And when we give God of our material resources, he gives us material blessings. And this is the benefit. And right here, it's on the screen. You can expect God to bless you with the material abundance when you honor him with the first portion of your income. What am I talking about? When you honor God with the first fruits, he will always give you what you need. He may not give you what we want, and often Americans have a hard time distinguishing between what they want and what they need, but I can tell you this, when you're willing to give God what's his, he will always give you what you need. After all, isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that he takes care of the birds and the sparrows? He's going to take care of you, so stop worrying. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's either true or it's not. And so we have to understand that when God blesses us, he will always give us what we need and a little extra to share with somebody else who may have a need. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. People who say they don't have enough to give God the first fruits are actually trying to do an impossible thing. They're trying to meet all their needs themselves. 
Now let me ask you, do you think that God can meet your need better than you can meet your need? That comes down to the whole issue here. Can we do a better job of caring for ourselves than God can care for us? I think not. In fact, you can live better on 90% of your income than on 100% of your income. And these are God's words, not mine. When he says in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there can be food in my house and test me now in this. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. And God says, okay, try me and I'll prove myself to you. I will make sure your needs are met. Now let me talk to you about a big mistake Christians make along these lines. They try to get the overflow of blessings themselves and do it for themselves. And a lot of that is withholding from God what is justly his. And what do they do? They try to meet their own needs, and when they try to meet their own needs, instead of depending on God by giving according to his law of, of, uh, of giving, giving the first fruits, they try to do it themselves, but they find they can't do it. And so what do they do? They go into debt. And in the process of their weakened financial condition, they pay their tithes, but to who? The bank. So you got to ask yourself, where am I going to pay my tithe? Am I going to pay it to God because of my heart for him? Or am I going to try to meet my own needs and go deeper into debt? And I will tell you the lie of Satan is to think we can make, we can't make it if we give God the first portion. And this is what the lie is that keeps so many Christians in financial bondage as they pay their tithe to interest instead of to God. Now you might be thinking, well, I tried that. It doesn't work. Well, let me respond to that, okay? Number one, if something doesn't seem to work according to our measurements, that's no reason to dishonor God and say, God, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. Number two, sometimes people do give the, the first portion of their income and, and they give the tithe, but in other matters, they are disobedient to God and they have this secret sin or they're living in some kind of sin. God isn't going to bless secret sin. Even though you give all of your income, he's still not going to bless you if you're living in sin. Number three, and listen carefully to this. Sometimes it's God's will for us in our spiritual journey to experience lean times. God never promised that we would have all the money and all the resources we want all the time. And the Apostle Paul, for instance, said that he learned the secret of being content with plenty of food and covering and abundance and then suffering need, not having much of that. And sometimes we all need to learn that lesson. But in general, in general, the principle is this. When we honor God with the first portion of our income, he'll bless us with more than we need. And just remember, God is able to bless us, to bless us far more abundantly than we can ever bless ourselves. And I challenge you, I challenge you, Honor God with the first portion of your income and see what he will do. Which leads now to the last requisite. Requisite number six, the path to a good life. Accept God's loving discipline. And with that I say, ouch. Because that hurts when God disciplines us. And so we find that in verses 11 and 12. Sometimes we forget and I look at you right now, and, and I'm seeing you not as how you appear to me right now. I'm seeing you as little 
toddlers sitting in all the pews right there because, you know, we were all little one time, right? We were all children. And because we were all little, even though you might be 65 or 50 or 85 right now, we all know what it, meant, what it means to have been disciplined by our parents. We all know the pain that went with that. And so God is teaching us a principle by which we've all been experienced. We've all been children who have discipline, and now we're going to talk about how God loves us through discipline. Now I realize, looking at you, that some of you really needed a lot of it when you were little. I can see that in you. And some of you didn't need so much. And some of you were like me. I never got in trouble. <laughs> oh, yes, I did. But uh, discipline. Now we all know that from our parents' discipline, there are three kinds of things that happen. Number one was the reprimand. We were told what was wrong and told how to correct it. Number two was the punishment. The corrective measure came. And there was some kind of discomfort to reinforce the lesson. And the third thing that we felt was the displeasure. There was some pain that went with this reprimand and this punishment. And there was some corrective action that mom and dad took because they knew we needed it and would help us in the long run. And the same thing is true for God. Those of us who have a personal relationship with the Lord are called the children of God. And so as children of God, there are times that our Heavenly Father must discipline us because all of us do things sometimes and say things sometimes that we should not do. And it only follows that as the Heavenly Father would do what our earthly father would do, that there would be times that he would take action. And so verse 11 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Now I admit, I never enjoyed discipline. I never said, oh, mom and dad, thank you for punishing me. I just, it's my greatest moment of the day. It just never came that way. And I don't feel really good when the Lord disciplines me either. It's, it's kind of a, a difficult thing to happen. And so it's really hard to feel good about discipline. So Solomon says, now don't react negatively when God disciplines us, when he deals with our sin. Don't reject it. Don't despise it. Don't loathe it. Just as we love God when things are good and good, we should love him when he needs to discipline us and accept that from his hand because God is trying to do something for our own good. Now, you might be wondering, well, I kind of know when I'm sinning, but how am I going to know when the Lord disciplines me? Well, I can tell you I'm glad I'm living in the 21st century rather than the Old Testament or the first century because when God disciplined his children back then, it was rather radical. I mean, boop. Sons of Korah, boom, they're gone. They fell into a big pit. Or Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit, boop, they're gone. One dropped dead and the other one dropped dead. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that if you take the Lord's table back in those days in an unworthy manner, you could be weak and sickly and a number of you have died. And 1 John chapter 5 says the same kind of thing. It doesn't normally happen that way these days. So how can I tell if the Lord is disciplining me? Well, let me give you four ways I look for in my own life. Way number one is the sting of a Bible verse. Now, I stay pretty closely connected to the Bible. I read it every day. I read books that are connected to the Bible. I listen to Christian radio and Bible verses come across. And, you know, every once in a while, there's a verse that will come out like an arrow, like a dart, and hit me in the heart and say, oh, man. That was for me today. I'm really blowing it on this area. And God would come to me with a verse. And he would just sting it to my heart. And I would realize I have fallen down in that area. And now I'm going to do something differently. And isn't it interesting 
that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that part of the role of the Word of God is to reprove us and to correct us. That's the gentle discipline of the Word. And so be expecting, as you're reading the Word of God, that every once in a while, there'll come that sting of a verse and strike you on your tender heart. Second, I look for presence of pain or crisis in my life. Here I am, things are going wrong, and I'm feeling down, and I got discomfort. I'm not in a good place. I've come to know it's a call to examine my life. Now, it may not be directly related to sin. It might be. But whenever there's something going on that's causing me a lot of discomfort, I will begin to examine to see whether the Lord's dealing with me about something. Third, I look for a sense of guilt. Do I have some clear sense of a violation against God? Do I have a heavy spirit? of misconduct or of wrong or remorse or sorrow that I can't shake. And I will tell you that when our hearts are tender towards the Lord, He'll use guilt to bring us up and say, you know, something needs to be done, something needs to be changed. We need to be listening. And the fourth, and this has happened to me on a number of occasions. It's not always that pleasant. But I look for an exhortation, an admonishment, or a rebuke from some other person. I don't know about you, but I want friends who are willing to level with me. I mean true friends. That if they see something in my life that needs correcting, if they see me out of line or even in some sin, that they would come up to me and tell me flat out, this brother is wrong. You need to deal with that. Well, where in the world would you get an idea or an illustration like that that God would, would move that way? Well, do you remember King David when he sinned in the matter of David with the woman Bathsheba? God sent a prophet. His name was Nathan. And Nathan came out and he used an illustration and David got angry about the illustration and then Nathan looked him right in the eyes and pointed at his nose and said, Thou art the man. You are the one. You have fallen into sin. And that changed the course of David's life. And all of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel is kind of the discipline of the Lord through that experience. Now, I don't know what shape discipline will be for you. It might be along those lines. It might be something different. But when you are aware that you are in violation of God's will and something is out of kilter in your life, it is likely that God is disciplining you, trying to move you away from something wrong to the pathway of what is right. But I want you to hear me carefully. Not all bad and painful things that happen to us are the discipline of the Lord. There's another realm out there. John 15. There are times where Jesus comes with his shears and he prunes us, not because we've sinned, but that we might bear more fruit. And there are times the Word of God says that he turns up the fire in our life as a refiner's fire to get rid of that dross, that flesh, or whatever that may not be sin at all. It's just that it's in the way of the brilliance of the reflection of Christ in our lives. And so he wants to refine us as gold. But yes, there are times that he disciplines us because of our sin. And I'm so interested in the fact that the author of Hebrews picked up this concept and he said that when the Lord disciplines us, it's as a father showing his love for us. Now the benefit is in verse 12. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. The benefit is stated very clearly. Discipline is an evidence of God's love. And so, the author of Hebrews said, if you don't have discipline, you can't prove God's love. But if you do have discipline, it's an evidence of God's love in your life. And so the benefit here 
is that God loves us too much to let us destroy ourselves and others. He takes measures that deal with our sin and lead to our good. Now, my friends, we can't have the good life that God wants for us apart from the discipline of God. Why? We're too naturally wayward, too much of self, too much of the flesh. And every once in a while, God moves with loving action to pull us back from something with a little pain in order that we might develop along the guiding lines because without his discipline, we would all self-destruct. And so I say to you as I close this morning, requisite number six is to realize that all of us need a spank on the tush from time to time from God as an evidence of his love because without it, we'd all be a church full of spoiled brats. And now, as I come to the end of the path to a good life, there are many voices out there saying, you want a good life? Do this. You find it on television all the time. There are many pastors out there saying, you want a good life? Health and wealth is yours. That's a lie. I must tell you, there's only one way to a good life. It's the path found in Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, wrapped around Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So let me review the six requisites. The first three from a sermon a month ago, the last three from today. Number one, if you want a good life, follow the biblical guidance of your parents and you'll live a long and peaceful life. Number two, be a scriptural friend and you'll improve your relationships with God and the people in your life. Number three, rely on God's wisdom rather than on your own and you'll walk in the right pathway of life. And from today's sermon, fear God and forsake wrong and you'll experience physical health. Number five, give God the first portion of your income and you'll always have more than you need. And number six, accept God's discipline and afterwards you'll understand God's love. Now, I don't know where you are today, but we're going to close. I'm asking the musicians to come right now. But as we do every week, to offer you an opportunity to respond. This is a place of prayer. This is a place of decision. This is a place of commitment. And perhaps the Lord has spoken to you that maybe you need Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can't walk the path of a good life without Him leading the way. And maybe today there's something that you heard that you need to make an adjustment. And God is asking you to be obedient to that even this morning. Would you stand right now and as we sing, if God has been speaking to you, this is a good place for you to come. And when it's all over, I'll pray for you that God would seal whatever decision is on your heart whatever the Spirit of God has spoken to you about today, that you might walk out of here different than when you came in. You come at any time as we sing the song if the Spirit of God has been speaking to you.